you open your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter, chapter 4. First Peter chapter four. Luke. Luke. Are my glasses there in the pew? We're having this discussion about old age earlier. I'm at that point. By the way, another announcement to make. Today is Brian's birthday. Happy birthday to Brian. It's a milestone birthday. I won't say which one. But I believe there's going to be cake after church for a little time of fellowship afterwards to celebrate his birthday. So don't rush off right afterwards. It's a good day. Amen? Baby born, celebrating a milestone birthday. It's a good day. If you followed FSU football this year, you have undoubtedly heard Coach Mike Norvell talk repeatedly about response, right? It's almost to the point of like, Every third word coming out of his mouth, right? Response, 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 response. He reminds his players often that they're going to face adversity in practice, in a game, in school, in life. They will have, they will face adversity. And oftentimes they will not be able to control the circumstances surrounding that adversity. They can't stop it. They can't change the circumstances to prevent the adversity from affecting them. What they can do, however, is control how they respond. Can't control the circumstances, can't control the adversity, but they can control their response. So how will they respond to an injury? How will they respond to a bad play? How will they respond to another teammate or another team, uh, the opposing team? Uh, mocking them or taunting them? How will they respond to a teammate who, with whom they have conflict or difficulty? How will they respond to a bad grade in class? How will they respond to the loss of a family member or to a family member's illness? Response is key to persevering and overcoming adversity. And I like that because I think there's a spiritual parallel that applies to our passage today as well. We will face adversity. We will struggle through difficulties in life. We will endure trials. And most of the time, oftentimes, we will not be able to control the circumstances that are bringing on that adversity. We won't be able to control the intensity of that adversity. The only thing that we can control is how we respond. How we respond when adversity strikes. And because we are Christians, we want to respond in a biblical way. We can control our response by responding in a biblical way to the adversity that we face in our lives. In today's passage, Peter encourages us as Christians as to how we should normally respond to adversity. How we should normally respond to the suffering that we face in our lives. So if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may, be, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted at the name of Christ, you are blessed, 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How should a Christian respond to suffering? I think Peter identifies four ways in this passage I'd like to look more closely at. First, he says, do not be surprised by your suffering. Do not be surprised by your suffering. Verse 12, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, we need to, again, remember the context here. Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering persecution from their pagan neighbors. And this persecution was mild in the sense that it was mostly ridicule, insults, slander, public ostracism. There may have been some who were dealing with bodily persecution, maybe some who had suffered death. That, that really intensifies or wraps up more after Peter's letter. But for the most part, these Christians are suffering, and they are, they are being, they're, they're suffering as a result of persecution. And Peter here says that, based on what he says here, he, I think he indicates that they were thinking that this suffering was a surprise. That, they, that their suffering, that their persecution may have seemed surprising to them. If you think about what the gospel means, what it, the gospel promises, right? When a person believes the gospel, we think of things like forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, membership in a loving fellowship, loving community, the hope of an eternal inheritance. All these things and many more we understand as, a, as, the, as the conferring of a special favor, a special privilege by God upon His people. And so when we are persecuted, it would have been natural for them to to wonder, why is this happening to me? I, it's the same thing for us, right? When we suffer, face adversity, I think the natural response that Christians will ask themselves is, why is this happening to me? Why is a good and loving God who has blessed me and desires to bless me and desires my good and is working for my good, why is he allowing this? How is he bringing this suffering to me? Why is this happening to me? The reality of their suffering didn't meet their expectation of what it meant to be blessed by God, of what gospel blessing entailed. But Peter indicates in verse 12 that suffering is a normal and expected part of Christian life. Again, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We're not to be surprised by suffering as Christians because Peter says suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. He says don't Think it's something strange. Nothing strange is happening to us when we suffer. And because suffering is a normal part of the Christian life, we should expect to suffer. Our default position, when we look at the circumstances of our lives from a biblical perspective, is that we will suffer. That our suffering is normal. This is par for the course for the Christian. In fact, we probably should be surprised when we don't suffer, that's the surprising thing. That's the strange thing, is when we're not suffering. Jesus says this as well in John 16, verse 33. 
I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And again in John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So we must not be surprised by our suffering. What might surprise us is that God wills our suffering. God wills our suffering. And we see in verse 12 that God wills our suffering to test us and purify us. And the mystery of God's providence, God has chosen to ordain suffering for our lives. If you look down at verse 19, Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And if you go also back to chapter 3, verse 17, Peter says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, sometimes our suffering is the result of God's will, or it is God's will that we suffer. In ordaining our suffering, though, we need to understand that God is not sinning, nor is He doing evil to us. But He uses the sinful and harmful actions of our enemies as the means by which He brings suffering into our lives. Therefore, the suffering we endure is not pointless, it is purposeful. God uses suffering in our lives for a sanctifying purpose, a purpose in which we are made more and more holy, more and more like Jesus Christ. And what is that purpose then for suffering? Peter says that it is to test us and to purify us. Verse 12, once again, says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter refers to our suffering as a fiery trial, right? This isn't just a garden variety, easy peasy thing. Suffering is called suffering for a reason. It is hard. There is adversity. It is difficult. It is painful for us to endure suffering. It is fiery, he says. But he indicates here in verse 12 that this trial has a purpose. It comes upon you to test you. The suffering that we endure from the hands of our enemies is God's means of testing us. Well, testing what? What is God testing when he brings these trials to our lives? Go back to chapter 1 for a moment. Verses 6 and 7. We saw this way back when. When Peter writes in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says here that suffering, God brings suffering into our lives to test the genuineness of your faith. Because it's only by a pure faith that we inherit the gospel promise of eternal life and the glorious rewards that God has reserved for us. And Peter reiterates this point in verses 17 and 18. If you look a little further down. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, in verse 17, Peter is making a reference back to some Old Testament passages. Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. And in those passages, the Lord declares His intentions to purify His people. The Jews had become, once again, quite sinful. 
They had turned to idols. They were practicing all kinds of immorality. They had forsaken God's law. And God had had enough. He had declared his intent to purify his people and to purge the sin from their midst. Well, Peter indicates that God intends to do the same thing for his new covenant people. And while God's judgment in the Old Testament was retributive, that is, that each person suffered for their own sins as a consequence of their sins, his judgment under the new covenant is redemptive. In other words, God's judgment, the way that Peter uses the word judgment here, is not indicating that he is condemning his people. His judgment or his righteous actions actually is redeeming them. He doesn't allow them, he doesn't allow us to remain in their sins, but he purifies us so that we will be the holy people that God declares us to be. Again, this is a theme that's been running through the book of 1 Peter. It almost feels like as I'm going through this passage, we've picked up on themes here and there and everywhere. Peter's kind of drawing everything to a synthesis here. Go back to chapter 1 for a moment once again. And look at verses 13 to 16. Actually, verse 14 to 16. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then over to chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God says that we, his new covenant people in Christ, are holy. And he calls us to live in that way. He calls us to live as the holy people that we are, as the holy people that he has made us to be. God furthers that purpose of sanctifying us. God furthers that purpose of making us more and more holy. How? By purifying us through trials. You can't be holy just the way you are. God is purifying us. He is burning off the dross. He is taking away, removing, and cleansing away the sin. And He is making us more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. How? By these trials. Because it is by enduring these trials, by enduring suffering, that Christians draw near to God. That we depend more deeply upon Him. And that we cling more closely to Him. Don't you experience that when you're suffering? Don't, isn't there a sense in which you draw near to God when you are suffering? You are more likely, you are more inclined to seek the Lord more, to pray for His help more, to seek His wisdom more, to seek His peace more when you are suffering than when you are not. And so, does it surprise us that God would use suffering in our lives to further that very purpose, to draw us to Him? Because it is only in drawing us to Him that He furthers that purpose, that we forsake sin more and more, that we grow more and more in holiness, if you are pursuing the Lord, if you are seeking the Lord, if you are drawing near to Him, don't you want to distance yourself more and more from sin? Don't you want to become more and more like, his, like Himself, like embracing His holy character and seeing that worked out in your own life? I think that's true. And so doesn't God have an interest in keeping us in suffering and bringing trials to us so that we will draw close to Him, so that we are purified from our sin, and that we are made more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God. I love those verses in the Scriptures that talk about the will of God, right? Because we all want to know what the will of God is. And we're thinking about it in terms of who will I marry, where will I live, what job will I have, 
What about this particular decision? We're thinking about those, those specific things. What does God want me to do in this situation? When the Bible speaks of the will of God, it's more broad. What is God's will for you, Paul says? Your sanctification. God wants you to be sanctified. It is God's will that you be holy. It is God's will that you become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so, if God wills our sanctification, and if by his providence he ordained suffering to be the means by which he purifies us, we should not be surprised when we suffer. We should instead expect it. And not only expect it, but we should be glad for it. And that's the second response that Peter draws our attention to in verses 13 and 14 that we should rejoice during our suffering. Again, look at verses 13 and 14. 14. In a contrast to not being surprised, we should instead, he says, rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that's an odd perspective to have, right? It is not intuitive to think that we should rejoice when we are suffering. Because suffering, by definition, is not pleasant. Suffering hurts. Suffering is painful. Suffering ordinarily brings grief and sorrow to our lives. Again, think about just how a little child responds when they get hurt, right? When a little child is running and falls and skins his knee, right? There's not rejoicing, oh, this is great. This is great that I've skinned my knee. This is great that I'm bleeding. It's great that I'm hurt. No, there is wailing. And there are many tears. And there is the pain of what's happened, not only to the knee, but just to to feel like the whole world is falling apart. And that's kind of how we feel in a spiritual sense when we are suffering. We feel like that child that skinned his knee. And yet, throughout his letter, Peter has called his readers to rejoice. So why should we respond to suffering with joy? Let me point out three reasons that Peter gives us in these verses, verses 13 and 14. First, he says that we rejoice because we share in Christ's suffering. We share in Christ's sufferings, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, he says. Peter has already mentioned back in chapter 2, verses 21 and 25, in chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ himself suffered. He suffered the reviling and rejection at the hands of sinful men. He suffered the humiliation and the shame of the cross. But Peter also tells us that Christ suffered redemptively. He suffered for a purpose. He suffered for us. He suffered for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. So in believing the gospel, we have entrusted ourselves to Christ. We have identified with Him. We have aligned ourselves with Him. And therefore, we should expect to suffer as He suffered. If we're going to receive all the benefits that come with believing in Jesus, that are his by right, then we also should expect that we're going to have to experience the suffering that he himself suffered. Suffering for the sake of Christ's name further strengthens and emboldens our association with Christ. If we're going to suffer because of Christ's name, it's going to draw us closer to Christ. It's going to make us want to associate and identify ourselves with him even more. And it is that fellowship and participation with Christ in our suffering that gives us joy. Because joy is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in our suffering 
because it substantiates that He is ours and we are His. When you are suffering for Christ's name, when you are suffering because of your allegiance to Christ, because of your identity with Christ, not something you've done in your, in your own, then that means even more that He is yours. I'm going to endure this suffering because Christ is mine, but also I get the joy of knowing that I am His. If I am suffering for His name, then I know that I am His and He is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. Is that relationship with Christ is that relationship, that certainty of that relationship, not a reality over which we should rejoice? If you are a Christian, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you are sure of that relationship, then when we suffer, should we not rejoice all the more? This is what the apostles did back in, chapter, back in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41, when the Jewish leaders had called the apostles in. Right? They've been preaching the gospel, declaring his name in the temple courts. They've been stirring up the people. People are coming to faith in Christ. The religious leaders, when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. This was their response. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for the name of Jesus. They were glad. They rejoiced. Because their suffering was not some over some stupid thing they had done. But it was because they were celebrating and glorifying and proclaiming the very name of Jesus. They suffered because of his name. So we rejoice because we share in Christ's sufferings. We also rejoice, Peter says, because we anticipate a future joy. Verse 13 again says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So because we share in Christ's sufferings, we are assured that we belong to Christ. And because we belong to Christ, we are assured of eternal glory. Throughout 1 Peter, the apostle reminds his readers of the promised inheritance that will be theirs when Christ returns for them. And that inheritance is eternal and it is glorious. It surpasses any earthly benefit that we might receive in this life. And it endures forever, far beyond the present sufferings we endure. This eternal glory will be ours. And it will be ours because we believe in Christ. Christ has attained it for us, and it is ours by faith. And so we patiently endure the sufferings of this life in order to take possession of that eternal glory. And that eternal glory means eternal joy. And the prospect of eternal joy at the end of the age inspires joy in the present, in the midst of suffering. When we realize there is a joy that will never be taken away, there's a joy in the future that will far surpass any experience of this life, then I can endure my present suffering now and I can be joyful at it because of the joy that lies ahead. But notice here that Peter is turning the tables a bit in an unexpected way when he says in verse 13, Rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's almost saying that if you rejoice now, then you, can be, you will have that eternal joy, joy and glory. In other words, Peter is saying that the present joy we have through our hope in Christ assures us that we will indeed experience that future joy at the end of the age when we take possession of that glorious inheritance that God has reserved for us. When we are rejoicing now in suffering, I can be assured I'm going to get that joy. I'm going to get that glory in the future. That joy is a sign. It is a confirmation that the joy of the future is mine. So we rejoice because we anticipate a future joy. 
And third, Peter says in verse 14 that we rejoice because we are blessed. We rejoice because we are blessed. Verse 14 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The word blessed here refers to God's favor, to the gracious endowment of his eternal goodness to us. We rejoice then by associating with Christ. We, we, we rejoice because of our association with Christ. We rejoice because we are identified with Christ. We rejoice because we are, we are embracing his name. And because of those connections, because of that association, because of that identification, because we have embraced his name, God has bestowed his eternal blessing upon us. Again, note the irony here. We are blessed because we are blessed when we are insulted for the name of Christ. We are blessed. We are insulted. We are blessed when we are insulted for the name of Christ. In other words, in other words the world insults us. The world reviles us because we are called by the name of Christ. But it is by that very name that God has eternally and immeasurably blessed us. It is by that name, the name by which they curse us and revile us and insult us, is the same name by which we have the blessing of forgiveness of sins. It is by the name of Jesus that we have been brought near to God. It is by that name that we are God's people. It is by that name that we are holy as he is holy. It is by that name that we have an eternal inheritance. Beloved, we are blessed. We are blessed. We are blessed. And because we are blessed, we rejoice. Jesus says, the last beatitude, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. You're blessed. You're blessed when you're persecuted. Because it means I have blessed you. You are blessed from God with this great reward in heaven. Now, Peter notes in particular two aspects of God's blessing for which we ought to rejoice. In verse 14, he says that we are blessed because we have received the Holy Spirit. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We are blessed because we have received the Holy Spirit. Because of Christ's redemptive work, we have received the Holy Spirit. He is ours. He abides in us. He dwells with us. And it is through the Spirit that God abides with each believer. And again, this is a big deal because this is something that had been taken away at the fall, right? To understand how big of a blessing the Holy Spirit is, we have to go to man's fall in the Garden of Eden. At creation, God dwelt among the people that he created. And God's intention for creation was enduring fellowship and the life that would come through that fellowship. At creation, God intended to dwell with man. He intended to give life to that man. God created man because he intended to have fellowship with man. But when man sinned, he cut himself off from God. And by cutting himself off from God, he cut himself off from life that is found only in God. And that is why God told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate the, the forbidden fruit. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You'll be cut off from God. You'll be cut off from life. Adam and Eve could not have fellowship with God. They could not have life on their own because life exists only in God. 
Now, in the later portions of the Old Testament, when God declared that he would make a new covenant with his people, he promised that he would give them, as part of that covenant, the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 is the, one of the declarations of this new covenant. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when Jesus came and inaugurated the new covenant, when Pentecost happened, the promise of the new covenant came to the church. We received the Holy Spirit. And it's by the Holy Spirit that God makes us alive. It's by the Holy Spirit that, that, that we abide with God, that He abides with us. We have a living relationship with Christ. By the Spirit, God restores His creation purpose. And we dwell with God again. God dwells with man again because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the promise of the new covenant because He gives us life in the place of death. And He causes us to fellowship with God which is undeterred ever again. That's why the Spirit can never be taken from us. That's why we can never lose our salvation because God's purposes in the New Covenant are eternal. So the reality, of the, the reality and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a great blessing to us. It's God's blessing to us. And the blessing of the Holy Spirit and His ministry to us should cause us to rejoice in our suffering. For it is through the Spirit that God helps us in our suffering. How do you endure suffering? The ministry of the Spirit among us. The Spirit is working in our lives. The Spirit is helping us. It's giving us wisdom. He's giving us joy. He's giving us peace to be able to endure suffering. So we are blessed because God has given to us the Holy Spirit. We are also blessed, Peter says, because we have the promise of eternal glory. Notice that Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of glory and of God. You notice that in verse 14. He is the Spirit of glory and of God. The Spirit of glory indicates one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, part of his ministry to us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this about Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation and the guarantee of our inheritance. His presence in our lives assures us of our salvation. It marks us off as God's people, and it guarantees that we will take possession of the inheritance that God has promised us in the gospel. So the Holy Spirit preserves us through our suffering and brings us to the eternal glory that God has destined for us. The Spirit assures us of our glorious participation in God's redemption at the end of the age. He is the Spirit of glory because He will bring us to glory. He is the spirit of glory because he brings us to our glorious future in Christ. And so we are blessed because we have the promise of eternal glory. And because of the assurance of that blessing, even in suffering, Peter says we ought to rejoice. We are blessed through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are blessed because he will bring us to the very end. And because of that, we should rejoice. We should rejoice. So when we suffer as a Christian, rejoice. Not because we suffer, but because of God's purpose in suffering. We rejoice because our suffering identifies us with Christ. We rejoice because we anticipate a future joy, despite the temporary suffering that we face now. And we rejoice because God has blessed us abundantly, especially through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who mediates God's presence in our lives 
and preserves us for our future glory. That brings us then to our third response to suffering, where Peter says, Do not be ashamed, but glorify God in your suffering. Do not be ashamed, but glorify God in your suffering. Peter says, first of all, here that there is no shame in suffering as a Christian. If you look at verses 15 and 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter here distinguishes two broad reasons for suffering. There is a suffering brought on by one's sinful actions, and there is a suffering that's brought on because we are Christians. We're brought on by being identified with the name of Christ. Peter talks about those two categories. He says there is, there is shame in suffering for sinful deeds. And Peter lists in verse 15 sinful deeds for which shame is appropriate. Murder, thievery, doing evil, and meddling. These are shameful actions. And those who do them should be ashamed of them. Earlier this week, Philip sent me a video, one of these Facebook videos, you know, goes around and it was, Pretty interesting. And so anyway, he passes along to me. It's actually, a, it's very short, very brief. It's a video of a, of a mother, assuming she's, I'm assuming the people she's talking to in the video are her own children, probably older teenage children, maybe even adult children. I'm assuming it was like a Friday night or a Saturday night, certainly dark, where you can see where she's talking. Probably a Friday or Saturday night when young people are more inclined to gratify the desires of their heart. And so she offered up some wise words that she referred to as the weekend security briefing. I'm going to give you the weekend security briefing. You're getting ready to go out there where there's a lot of temptations, where there's a lot of opportunities for you to gratify the desires of your heart. Here's a brief weekend security update. She says, do not add to the population. Do not subtract from the population. Do not end up at the hospital, newspaper, or jail. That's sufficient. Now, why would she say that? Why would she say those things? Because she is warning them against committing deeds that are shameful. Those are shameful things. The kind of things that Peter mentions here are shameful things. Sinful deeds, all sinful deeds are shameful. We should be ashamed when we sin. And those shameful deeds if they bring suffering, when they bring suffering, are appropriate. The suffering that results from shameful deeds is warranted. In contrast, Peter says in verse 16, there is no shame in suffering as a Christian. Look, if you suffer because of your own stupidity, your own sinfulness, you deserve that. You should get everything that's coming to you for that. But there is no shame in suffering as a Christian. Notice that Peter calls his readers here Christians. We are Christians. This is only one of three instances where the followers of Jesus are called Christians in the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's the sort of the standard that we use, right? Only used three times in the New Testament. The followers of Jesus in Antioch first acquired the name Christians by those outside the church. The, other, the people outside didn't know what to call these people, right? The people that are doing what we're doing this morning. They're gathering together for worship, singing these songs of praise, hearing the this gospel preached, loving one another, meeting one another's needs. Who are these people? They're Christians, right? It was intendly, intended originally as a pejorative term, right? Those people are Christians. Those people are Christians. It was a pejorative term. But the word simply means a little Christ. The Christians acquired this name, not only because of their association with Jesus, 
We identify, we believe in him. We identify with him. But they are named Christians or little Christ because of their imitation of Jesus. When pagan outsiders saw Christians, they saw a little Christ. And so while pagans use the term Christian as a pejorative moniker, to be called by the name Christian is the highest of honors. And despite well-meaning attempts today not to use the name Christian because of its association with all things that are not Christian, to be called a Christian is a great honor. There are people that want to replace Christian with other names. That's fine. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It is a great privilege and a great honor to be called a Christian because it means that I am a little Christ. That I'm one who imitates him. That I'm one who identifies with him. I'm one who strives to look more and more like him. But by this same name, this name of privilege and honor, we also suffer. Because we share Christ's name, we also share his suffering. Again, to remind us what Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Because we suffer for the sake of Christ's name, there is no shame in suffering. Instead, there is only glory in being identified with Christ and joy in suffering for his name. And furthermore, Peter says here, there is no shame in suffering because it is God's will that we suffer. We've already mentioned this, but I'll just say here once again, that if it is God's will that we suffer, then we ought not be ashamed. Suffering is God's good work in our lives to make us more and more like Christ. He is accomplishing his sanctifying purpose in us. And the result of that is glory, not shame. And still further, Peter would say that God uses suffering to accomplish his purposes of eternal glory. In verses 17 and 18, we see, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So in our suffering, God is purifying us. He is doing his work of righteousness in us to sanctify us for eternal glory. Through suffering, then, God completes the goal that he has for us. And what is that goal? To conform us to the image of his Son so that we are like Jesus Christ, so that we are Christians in every way possible. And because of that, we should not be ashamed of our suffering. If God is working out his purposes to make you like Christ, there's no shame in that. That's the reason to rejoice. That's a reason to glory. Therefore, instead of being ashamed of being a Christian, we should instead glorify God in our suffering. We should glorify God in our suffering. Because we suffer for the name of Christ, we glorify God. But why do we glorify God in our suffering? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First, we glorify God in our suffering because God is sovereign and works all things, even our suffering, to his eternal purposes. So everything that God does is worthy of glory. Even when he brings suffering into your life, it's where he is worthy of glory. So he must receive the glory for all of his sovereign works, including the sovereign work of bringing suffering to our lives. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 18, Paul says, For by him, for by Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What is God's purpose for Christ? It is to make him preeminent. It is to glorify him. And if God, if we, if God receives glory through our suffering, then we should glorify God as a result of that. In Romans 8.28, Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if we don't see the purpose of suffering in our lives, that doesn't mean that we should, should cast stones at God or, or, or doubt God. It means that we should glorify God because his, that suffering is not pointless. It is purposeful. God is working all things together for good for those who love him. So God ordains and uses our suffering for his eternal purpose and for all that he does, even our suffering, we must glorify him. Peter also says that we glorify God in our suffering because God works out his sanctifying purposes in our lives. Again, we've already talked about this, but just to mention it one more time, just very briefly, God's work of, God's work of sanctification in our lives is good and glorious. It is a good and glorious thing to take sinful people and forgive them cleanse them, redeem them, and sanctify them is a work of God's sovereign power and grace. It is all his work, and all his works are good and glorious. All his works then demand glory. We must glorify him for his works. Peter also says that we glorify God in our suffering because God will vindicate himself and bring an end to all opposition. Again, it may seem in the moment that our persecutors, that our enemies have the upper hand. It may seem that they are victorious. It may seem that we are vanquished, but it's not true. Peter reminds us that God will bring to judgment those who are ungodly, the ungodly and the sinner. He will bring his judgment to those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now think about this for a moment. If suffering is not pleasant to us and God wills it for our purification, and God's purifying work doesn't feel pleasant to us, then what does that mean for those who do not know him? For whom his judgment comes, it does not have a purifying purpose. If God's purifying work feels unpleasant to us, for whom God is working an eternal weight of glory, then what will that judgment feel like for those who do not belong to God? What Peter says in verses 17 and 18 here is that God will vindicate his name and God will vindicate his people. God will triumph over all his enemies and Christ will be exalted among all peoples. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we can be sure of this outcome, because God raised Jesus from the dead. We know that Christ is victorious because of the resurrection. We know that Christ will vindicate us because of the resurrection. And because we hold out this hope in the midst of suffering, we ought to glorify God. Finally, the last response. Entrust yourself to God and keep doing good. Entrust yourself to God and keep doing good. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says two things there. First, entrust yourself to God. Entrusting yourself to God means trusting God, committing yourself to his care, trusting God to take care of you and provide for you and help you through your suffering. By entrusting ourselves to God, we follow the example of Jesus, who did what? 
entrusted himself to God and his suffering. Chapter 2, verse 23, says that when he was reviled, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You think about Jesus at the very last moment, as he is about to draw his final breath on the cross, at the end of all his agony, with his death as a certain destiny, Jesus uttered his last words. Remember what he said? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The word commit is the same word here in trust that Peter uses. Father, into your hands I commit or I entrust my spirit. Jesus obeyed the Father in the greatest torment of his life until the very end. He endured the shame and indignity of the cross, and yet he entrusted himself into God's care, believing that God would fulfill his promises and raise him from the dead. So as we endure suffering, we also must entrust ourselves to God. Our lives belong to him. He created us and redeemed us for his purpose. He will honor his word and do for us all that he has promised to do. We must entrust ourselves to God. The way that we show that we've entrusted ourselves to God is to keep doing good. That's the sign that we've entrusted ourselves to God. And trust, therefore, those who suffer according to God's will will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We continue to do good. Peter here is calling us to faithfulness amidst suffering. Trial should not tempt us to forsake God or abandon the faith. But we must resolve to remain faithful to him. And we demonstrate that faithfulness in doing good, in obeying the commands he's given us to do. We are to live as Christians, right? If we're called Christians, then we're to live as Christians. We follow Jesus then by imitating his example and his life. So how do we respond to suffering? Just to sum it up. First, don't be surprised by it. Expect it. It's the normal part of the Christian life, and God, God wills it to bring about our sanctification. Second, rejoice in the midst of suffering. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. We share in Christ's sufferings. We anticipate a future joy, and we are blessed by the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Third, don't be ashamed of suffering, but glorify God in it. We suffer because we are Christians. We are his people. And he is accomplishing all of his eternal works in us through our suffering. And finally, entrust yourself to God and keep doing good. Commit yourself to God's care. Commit yourself to God's purpose and do all he calls you to do until that day when we take possession of the inheritance that he has promised to us. Let's pray. Lord, we are indeed thankful for all of your works. It's easy for us, Lord, to be thankful for the work of creation that we see your glory manifest in all around us. It's easy, Lord, to be grateful and to rejoice in the work of redemption that you've done for us by forgiving our sins and bringing us into a relationship with you by anticipating those promises that are ours. Lord, it's so difficult to be grateful for suffering. And while we acknowledge, Lord, that it is not how you designed this created order, 
We trust, Lord, that you are sovereign over it, and that you ordain suffering, Lord, even by the sinful actions of others, so that we might be made more and more like Jesus Christ. That through suffering, your purposes are accomplished in our lives. And Father, I pray that that's what we would desire the most. That we wouldn't desire the good life, the happy life, the easy life, but that we would desire Christ's life in us. That we would desire to be what you intend us to be. That we desire, that you, that you, that we desire to be like your Son in every way possible. And so, Father, however you choose to accomplish that purpose, we want to submit ourselves to that. We want to be grateful for it and be thankful for it and rejoice in it. So if you use suffering in our life, Father, we pray you'd help us to embrace that. We don't have to be joyful for it, but we can be joyful for the purposes you accomplished in it. We pray that would be true for us, both today and in all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.